Introduction I wrote this book because I want to help save families. A happy family is good for children, parents, and our society at large. Yet in the United States, far too many families are broken. There are many reasons for this situation, but financial stress is, without question, one of, if not the, leading cause of family chaos. If I can play a small part in keeping families intact, I will have been successful in writing this book. While I can't speak with authority on coping with addictions, wayward spouses, or rebelling children, I can about financial planning. Since 1998, I've helped many families simplify their financial lives, save cash, get out of debt, and ultimately breathe easier, knowing that they are getting their financial house in order. As a professional financial planner, I definitely speak with experience, but more importantly, I speak from personal experience. Around 1979, when I was nine years old, my dad had just landed his first good job, and for a few months, it seemed that we finally had some financial stability. Up to that point, we'd had none, and my folks fought all the time about money. I would rather have been anywhere than at home during these arguments. With my dad's new job, it seemed we finally had our break. Everything would be all right. Then just like that, a few months after my dad landed that job, my folks split up. I suppose the burden of all the years of financial stress took its toll. But I asked myself, why now? After all we'd been through now, when things were finally looking up, you're going to split? I simply could not believe it. So my mom and three kids, of whom I was the oldest, were left to fend for ourselves. I remember friends laughing when I used orange and purple money to buy stuff at the store for my mom. What kind of money is that? They asked mockingly. This was well before the days of EBT cards. Back then, people could actually see you were on food stamps. Powdered milk? Yup. Being separated from your friends in the school lunch line because we got free lunches? That was us. I remember my mom being unable to pay the bills, so our gas was cut off. We had to live with neighbors or freeze to death during brutal Maine winters. I became a very angry kid, and this anger flowed into adulthood. But for the grace of God, things could and probably should have turned out very badly. A stint in the army, quitting alcohol, finding a loving wife, and most importantly, discovering that I am loved by the Lord made all the difference. But I shudder to think what my life might have been if these good things hadn't happened. Stories like mine are not unique. Throughout our country, kids are raised in poverty. Poverty can lead to bitterness, resentment, and anger. When you feel you've been slighted by life's lottery, it is seductive to become angry. Being angry does nobody any good and is not a place God wants for us either. The more anger, the less love. Financial stress is one of the leading causes of divorce. Single-parent homes are the most predictable variable for poverty. Poverty leads many to despair. Thus, logic says that if we can reduce financial stress, we can reduce the likelihood of married couples divorcing, which in turn creates less poverty and ultimately leads to less despair, which may lead to more happiness in the family unit. Now, don't misunderstand. 
There certainly are many wealthy children who've been sucked into the scourge of anger and resentment. Just look at most of the leaders of communist or socialist revolutions. Many of those revolutionaries were from upper-middle-class, if not outright wealthy, families. I'm ignorant about what causes a wealthy kid to become angry. But I am experienced in what causes a poor kid to get bitter. From both personal and professional experience, I know financial stress can lead to broken families, which can lead to broken lives. Maybe you can learn a couple of things from my personal experience and also from my experience as a professional financial planner. If you can take just one thing from this book to better your financial situation, man oh man, I will have done my job. Josh Scandlin, February 2018. Debt is the enemy. Debt is the enemy. Debt is the enemy. Say it with me. Debt is the enemy. Debt has left a trail of destruction in its wake worse than the greatest tornado. Kingdoms have fallen because of it. Governments have sent countless people to die in battle because of it. People have taken their own lives because of it. Families have been destroyed because of debt. Why does this happen? It's so simple. People mistakenly believe that if they can afford an item today, they will be fine, without even the slightest thought that something could change in the future. Many Americans fall into this trap. We spend everything we have coming in. Then we take on debt so we can spend even more. So while it's critical to understand that debt is the enemy, the question must be answered, how did we take on so much debt to begin with? Here is my story. In 2008, in the midst of a U.S. economic downturn unlike anything we had seen since the Great Depression, my family had just moved to South Texas. We moved so that I could take a job that paid me a decent, steady salary. Previously, I had worked as a fee-based financial advisor, meaning I got paid on the amount of money I managed for clients. Given the market was in the middle of a 50% sell-off, my income had declined quite a bit. Ironically, my expenses did not go down when my income did. I still had mortgage, car loans, and credit card debts to pay. Our income fell by nearly half and my expenses stayed the same. Not a good place to be, especially because we had been barely breaking even before. So I needed a job that would pay more and provide a steady income. And thankfully, we found that job, but we had to move to San Antonio. An interesting thing about South Texas in those days was that the real estate was cheap. We were able to buy a house nearly three times the size of the one we sold in Virginia for only 25% more in price. This was sticker shock in reverse. It was tough not to get sucked into the excitement. Are you telling me we could live in this house for just a couple hundred more a month in mortgage payment than I was paying before? Unbelievable. We ended up buying a very nice house with 3,300 square feet, tile throughout, a wonderful kitchen, backed up against some undeveloped ranch land. We loved it. The problem came when I started my job. There wasn't anything for me to do. For the first three months, I had no real responsibilities. Sounds good, right? Well, not if you have just moved your family 1,500 miles, are mortgaged to the hilt, and wonder why on earth your company would keep you. After all, 
I wasn't doing anything. I couldn't stop thinking, what if they lay me off? I was sure my company was going to have to make cutbacks, and it would probably be LIFO, last in, first out. Indeed, layoffs abounded across the country. Worse, I was not even adding any value to my employer. Surely they would see this and let me go. Then what would we do? We had just moved here to escape a pending financial disaster. We had very little savings, we already had debt before we moved, and we added to that debt by purchasing a large house. We could only afford that debt based on my salary, and it was clear to me that my job was not stable. We also needed a new vehicle as our older minivan had major problems. On top of that, the air conditioning was out in the car I used to commute to work. I would probably need AC to drive in the South Texas heat, right? This was going to cost money that we just didn't have. Ultimately, things worked out for me. I wasn't let go, and I did pretty well for nearly a decade at that job. But I will never forget that first year and the feeling of being one step away from being blown up by a debt landmine. I don't want you to have to go through that. If you learn anything from this book, it is this. Debt is fixed. Your income is variable. Debt will lead you to worry like you wouldn't believe. Avoid it like the plague. Let's go back to 2007 and visit with Brenda and Kevin. They are a typical American family of four. They have a mortgage, car payments, some credit card bills, and some student loans. Their debt payments total about $2,000 a month. That's not a huge problem, though, because Brenda is bringing home $50,000 a year, about $4,166 a month, while Kevin finishes up school. Take their debt payments and divide it into their monthly income, and they have a debt-to-income, or DTI, ratio of about 48%. That simply means that nearly half of their income is being used to service debt. A good rule of thumb for DTI ratio is to remember that banks typically won't give you a mortgage if your DTI is above 36%. Keep that firmly in mind as you look at your own situation. Lots of families have a DTI well above 36%. However, so if this is you, don't think you're alone. You are not. Ideally, we'd want you to have no debt, but a DTI of less than 25% is good. That's the goal I'd recommend for you. Shoot to get your DTI below 25%. Unfortunately, because Brenda and Kevin spent half their income on debt, it is difficult for them to save. They still have living expenses. They have to eat, fill the car with gas, pay doctor's bills, etc. It stinks that they can't save, but what can they do? They have to get by today. They'll worry about the future, well, in the future. Of course, they have no emergency fund either, so they hope the air conditioning won't break down or something. Today is what matters, and they are making ends meet. Not a perfect financial scenario by any stretch of the imagination, but... Like most Americans, they're getting by. Then 2008 hits. One day, Brenda goes into her office and her boss asks to see her. The boss says that while the company is not laying people off, everyone is going to have to sacrifice a bit. A shared sacrifice, her boss calls it. All the executives will take a 33% pay cut, and they're asking non-executives to take a 20% cut until they can right the ship. We know this will be tough on everyone, she says, but at least we still have our jobs. I have a lot of friends who are without work now. 
Somehow, this is supposed to make Brenda feel better, that other people are worse off. Brenda quickly calculates what a 20% pay cut means. This is not going to be good. They are just getting by on $50,000 a year of income. How are they going to make this work on $40,000? After all, 48% of their income goes to pay debt. Going forward, because of the pay cut, 60% of their income will go to debt. Look at Table 1. You will see Brenda's income drop from $50,000 in 2007 to $40,000 in 2008. Now look at the total expenses, which are their living expenses plus debt payments. These stay the same, $49,000. $40,000 coming in, but $49,000 going out means they have a $9,000 deficit. To plug that deficit, they would have to use savings or borrow. Unfortunately, they don't have any savings, so they have to borrow. Brenda and Kevin borrow $9,000, which adds to their total debt. Total expenses have also gone up proportionally to their increase in debt. In this example, the additional $9,000 in debt equals another $1,080 in annualized debt payments. They still have $25,000 living expenses, but their debt payments have increased to $25,080, meaning that their total expenses are $50,080, but their income is still only $40,000. Unless they bring in more income, Brenda and Kevin's deficits will continue to grow, as will their debt and their debt payments. In just a year or two, no bank will loan them any more money, and then there will be no other solution but to declare bankruptcy. Readers, I've been in financial planning since 1998. I can tell you the biggest cause of worry, of divorce, of soulless lives working in jobs people hate is when one goes to bed at night wondering how they're going to pay the bills. Think about it like this. You're working this crappy old job that you only took because you were young and needed to make some money to get started in life. Five years go by and you're still there, but mentally you checked out a long time ago. You say to yourself, I never wanted to be doing this anyway. I need something more fulfilling to my soul. I'm going to find something else. You start looking around and you find that perfect gig. The only problem is they won't pay you what you're currently making. You rationalize this to yourself. Yeah, I'll take a small front-end pay cut, but this gets me in the door and it's a great first step to bigger and better things. After all, sometimes you have to take a step back to move two steps forward, right? You go home happy, can't wait to share the news with your wife. But when you tell her about the reduction in salary, she says, we can hardly pay the debt we have on your current salary. How will we be able to afford it on a lower salary? You're prepared for her argument, so you say, yes, but this is a perfect opportunity for me to step in and learn the ropes. I'm sure that in a couple of years, I'll be making way over what I'm making now, and I'll be much happier, too. Trust me on this. To which she says, um, I'm sorry, hon. We can't afford this right now. We are drowning in debt as it is. Maybe when we've paid down some of this, you can go back to them. You try desperately to convince her. It's going to work out, I promise. Haven't you heard of all those successful business owners who started by leveraging their credit cards to the max? Now look where they are. It can work. She responds, we are already in more debt than we can afford. Don't you see that? And of course, she is right. You have too much debt and you are stuck. Remember, Debt is not your friend. It's a seducer, always tempting, always inviting you to buy something. This item only costs $100. Just 
Just put it on the plastic card. You need, deserve, want it, the tempter says. It is so easy to fall into the temptation. Avoid it. I can hear some now saying, how else am I going to get a mortgage or buy a car without taking on debt? I get that. We will be discussing various financing strategies later in this book. But remember, even when you are buying a home, you may be able to afford it today, but what if? What if your income drops, your bonus doesn't matriculate, you get laid off? Renting versus owning. We've been told that the American dream is to own one's home. I used to believe this. Now, I'm not so sure homeownership is something we should all aspire to. Let's bring back Brenda and Kevin. Remember, Brenda had just taken a 20% pay cut in order to keep her job. She understood that unless their family's income increased real soon, things would get dicey. Kevin could always get a job, but he had put so much time, effort, and money into school that it would be foolish if he didn't finish. So Brenda starts looking for a new job in order to increase her pay. Luckily, she finds one rather quickly with a decent salary increase. The only drawback is that the job is six states away. However, it is near Kevin's parents and the area has a much cheaper cost of living. Kevin is happy because it means they will be closer to his family, and since most of his courses are online, he can still stay enrolled in school. Brenda is looking forward to it, too, because of the higher salary and cheaper cost of living. The job looks promising as well. Kevin has already told his parents the good news. His folks are really excited. They can't wait to be close to the grandkids. The only thing that Brenda and Kevin need to do to start their new life is to sell their house. Kevin doesn't think that will be much of a problem. After all, four years ago, they paid $200,000, and the house probably increased 4% a year, nothing extraordinary, he says. Brenda isn't as sure, though. The economy is in a tailspin. However, when their realtor suggests listing at $230,000, they go with it. The first sale sign goes up in the front yard. Kevin is already calculating the profit they will make. We should pocket around $30,000, he excitedly tells Brenda. We can use that for a down payment on a nicer home. After all, real estate prices there are so much cheaper than here. Brenda just hopes for a quick sell, even if they have to take less than their asking price. Three other houses are for sale in the neighborhood, and that bothers her. That sounds like a lot of competition. However, their realtor tells her not to worry. All these houses being listed in one neighborhood should just bring more buyers. After a few days, they have no interest, not a single showing. Brenda is worried. Isn't the first week of a new listing when the most interest is, she asks their realtor? While looking up houses in the town they hope to move to, she decides to check the other houses for sale in her neighborhood. Are they selling? She brings up the house down the street that is closest in amenities to theirs, and her heart sinks. Kevin, come here. Kevin comes rushing. Look, Brenda commands, pointing to the laptop screen. These guys are selling $25,000 below us. Is our house worth $25,000 more than theirs? Don't worry, Kevin responds calmly. We've maintained our house much better, and it shows. Buyers will see this. But even with Kevin's confidence, no potential buyers come. In fact, the house down the street also doesn't move. One house two streets over sells, but for $50,000 less than the owners bought it for just three years earlier. Now Brenda is even more worried. 
right after Brenda and Kevin got married, they thought they should realize their American dream and buy a house. That's what you're supposed to do, right? Get married, buy a house, have a kid, etc. They bought the house for $200,000, but because lending standards were so easy in the mid-2000s, they only had to put 5% down, not the traditional 20%. Being a bit more conservative, Brenda felt they should have put down more, even though it wasn't a requirement. However, the way the markets were moving back then, everyone said that it didn't make sense to lock up your money when the house was just going to increase in value anyway. Do something else with the money you were going to put down and let the wonders of leverage work its magic. Their $10,000 down payment was their initial equity, i.e., how much of the house they actually owned. So for every dollar in equity, they had $19 in loans, a 19 to 1 leverage. Leverage works fantastically if markets cooperate. If the house had appreciated 4% a year, as Kevin estimated, it would have been worth $235,000, which would mean their equity would have nearly quintupled from $10,000 to $45,000. With a loan balance still around $190,000, their leverage would only be 4 to 1, an enormous reduction in debt to equity. This is how leverage can work. You invest a little and you borrow a lot. If the value of that home increases, all the increase goes to you. This is what Americans have been force-fed to believe for many years. You can take part in the American dream with hardly any down payment. In the mid-2000s, there were even things called ninja loans, which stood for no income, no jobs, or assets. People were borrowing money without even the slightest ability to pay it back. No one cared because the real estate market was increasing 10% or more each year. As long as you could sell the house for more than you bought it for, things would work out just fine. But what 2008 taught us is that housing markets don't always appreciate. We found out exactly what happens to homeowners when they are overly leveraged and the markets decline. They go bankrupt. Please remember, leverage is just a fancy term for debt, which is what caused the housing crisis of 2007 to 2008. Oh, by the way, do you know what was one of the main causes of the stock market crash at the onset of the Great Depression? You got it. Leverage, i.e. debt. People borrowed money to buy stocks that they thought would increase significantly in value. When a decrease actually occurred, they were doomed. Leverage works on paper, indeed. In practice, though, not so much, and lives get ruined. Back to Brenda and Kevin trying to sell their house. Unfortunately, Houses just are not moving. Brenda asks her future employer for one more month to sell their house. They accommodate her because they like her, but they did have work to get done and are very eager for her to start. They also tell her they are going to continue to interview just in case. Brenda becomes even more nervous. We have to move this house or I'm going to lose this job offer, she desperately tells Kevin. They drop the price to be more competitive with the house down the street. Still no offers. They even dropped the price to $195,000, which is $5,000 less than what they bought the house for four years earlier. And still nothing. With the clock ticking and in pure desperation, Brenda convinces Kevin to go as low as they can before the job opportunity is rescinded. Kevin doesn't like it, but he agrees to drop the price to $180,000, meaning that after real estate commissions and closing costs, they will have to come up with cash in order to sell the house. 
But if you recall in Chapter 1, Brenda and Kevin aren't saving anything because their debt payments are eating half their income. So how are they going to come up with the cash to get out from under the house? Maybe Kevin's parents can help them out? Then, after some very worrisome days, they receive an offer, $140,000. What? They cannot believe it. $140,000. The buyer must know they are desperate. Four years ago, they paid $200,000, and now a buyer offers to buy the house for 30% less. Kevin flips out. No way, he yells. Who do these people think they are? We aren't going to give away this house. It's worth way more than what they're offering. They're trying to take advantage of us. Houses are not moving, and people are desperate. Desperate people are easy to take advantage of. We just have to hang in there, Kevin says. Someone will see the true value of our home and offer a fair price for it. No, Kevin, that's not going to happen, Brenda softly explains. We bought the house when the market was at the high end. Things were moving so fast back then and there were so many offers on houses that we had to sign the contract within hours of actually seeing the house or someone else would get it before we did. We simply bought too high. Brenda knows the reality of what is going on. They can't sell the house, so she'll have to decline the job offer. There won't be any move to live closer to Kevin's parents. They are going to have to cut back massively, too, because of that pay cut. It is going to be very tight for the next few years while Kevin is in school. Maybe Kevin will have to get a part-time job while he finishes up. Brenda knows that something will have to change if they are going to make it. Don't worry, hun. When I graduate, I'll get a good job and we'll be okay, Kevin says. I hope, Brenda says apprehensively. After all... She's seen many recent grads with huge amounts of student loan debt unable to find work. Brenda and Kevin rushed to buy their home because the market was so hot that any indecision meant they'd lose out to someone else. Unfortunately, in their rush to capture the American dream of homeownership, they paid too high a price. And when they need to sell it to move on, they can't. There are too few buyers out there and way too many desperate sellers. Basic supply and demand economics. Too much supply, prices drop. With all the job losses, people just walked away from their homes and foreclosed, which only led to more market declines. The American dream didn't turn out to be quite the way it was promised for many people. On the other hand, imagine if when Brenda and Kevin first got married, they had rented instead of buying a house. In that case, because they would have had no house to sell, they would just have had to give the landlord 30 days' notice and then move on to that job closer to Kevin's parents. Easy as pie. My family rented a couple of times when it appeared we were going through a transitionary phase, i.e. getting ready to relocate. We sold our house in Phoenix and rented a place for about nine months while we were contemplating moving back east. When I landed a job in Virginia, it was a very easy transition. No house to sell. We just gave the landlord notice and we were done. It turned out the landlord was shady and didn't give us our security deposit back. Not much we could do other than file a report with the Better Business Bureau. But even in that case, we were able to move on with minimal hassle. We then rented a place in Virginia for a year while we got the lay of the land so we could see where we wanted to live, and that worked out really well too. There are some downsides in renting, don't get me wrong. For instance, you can't do much to the house without your landlord's permission. 
While you may want to improve the backyard area, if you do so, it will be on your dime and you will lose those improvements once you vacate the premises. Leaky roof? You have to call the landlord. He'll get around to fixing it when he's good and ready. And yet, the whole time you're waiting for a fix, water is dripping into the house. Or the electrical unit is antiquated, and thus during any thunderstorm, it trips when the sump pump kicks on, or your basement will flood. The landlord needs to send someone out to fix this, but again, he'll do that on his schedule, not yours. It is a major hassle relying on the landlord, I will admit. So renting is not the panacea either. However, renting makes complete sense for many reasons. If you are likely to move anytime soon, it's hard to make a case to buy a house. The moral of the story is quite simple. Not everyone needs to buy a home. In fact, if you're just starting out and your kids aren't even in school yet, wait. Save some cash so when you do decide to purchase, you have a decent down payment. It's very probable that you are going to move a couple of times in your career, and it's so much easier if you don't have to offload a house to do that. Buying a home is a big deal and should be looked at as a long-term purchase. Think about it long and hard before you commit, and certainly don't rush into any purchase as Brenda and Kevin did, and as many others have done. If you're not sure you are ready to make the long-term commitment that homeownership entails, well, there's nothing wrong with renting. Beware the Great Schools Trap My family has moved five times in 20 years. Whenever we moved, since we have school-aged children, our choice on where to live was driven primarily by the affordability of homes and the school ratings on websites like greatschools.org. Unfortunately, Homes in highly-rated districts are typically more expensive than homes in the lower-rated districts. So if we wanted our kids in the best schools, we had to sacrifice affordability, which meant we had to stretch to make it work financially. We've put our kids in great schools, as defined by various websites, in Virginia, Texas, New Jersey, and Georgia. We paid for one child to attend a private school. While they were all decent schools, I've learned that what truly makes a school great is the principle. Leadership from the top is critical to your child's experience in any school. Great principle equals great school. Of course, how can you get to know the principle in a school if you live in New Jersey and are contemplating a move to Georgia? Well, you won't have that luxury, most likely. And this is where the ratings websites come in. You can evaluate schools from afar without leaving the comfort of your own home. The websites make it so easy, too. Just log into a website like greatschools.org, and the ratings are broken down into easy-to-see numbers and even color coding. One wonders how we ever evaluated schools before the advent of the Internet. Give it a shot yourself and see how your school is doing. Go to greatschools.org and right on the homepage, type in the name of your school. I went to Montgomery Blair High School in Silver Spring, Maryland. Type that in, press Enter, and voila! I can see how my high school rates. Oh no! Greatschools.org only gives it a light green rating of 6. How about my wife's high school? Yikes! A 2 shaded dark red. Not good. How about my kids' schools? Phew! Dark green, 9. Get the subliminal color coding? Green and red? 
Of course, the good folks at greatschools.org would never say they are telling parents not to look at schools with a red, that is, low rating. Instead, they would say parents need to do more research about why the school is rated that way to begin with. Here is what greatschools.org states on their website. The foundation of the great school's rating reflects how well students do on standardized tests compared to other students in the state, and ratings in most states are based exclusively on test scores. While test results give parents a good sense of how well students are performing at a given school, it only provides a limited snapshot of school quality. In other words, the school administers a test, and if the kids do well, the school gets high ratings on greatschools.org. Did the school actually advance the student's ability to learn, though? Look, I'm not taking issue with what greatschools.org does, or any other website for that matter. Without question, they provide a valuable service as a starting point in your school assessment. But it is hard to deny that we have been bludgeoned to equate high test scores with great schools. Yet there are many reasons that some children test better than others. I have four children. Each reacts differently to taking tests. One of my kids has dyslexia, and test-taking is a huge task for him. His IQ is through the roof. Is his ability to take a test truly a valid assessment of his aptitude or even his school? I don't think so. Remember, we are evaluating the test-taking ability of children, some as young as seven years old, to determine a great school's rating. Doesn't that seem odd? Unfortunately, how else can parents determine if the school they send their kids to is any good? I truly don't know. I certainly don't fault any parent for using greatschools.org and other websites as their primary research tool to evaluate schools, as we've done time and again. But please understand that you will pay a higher price to live in that higher-rated school district. I ask you to consider whether that school district is worth the higher price you'll pay for a home there. If you are contemplating a move, Keep in mind that many parents will move mountains to get their kids into the best school districts, which means demand for homes in these districts will be high. What does high demand do to prices? If you said increased prices, you should teach economics. This higher demand leads to higher home prices. What I've seen both personally and as a professional financial planner is that parents spend a significant amount of their income on housing just to get into the highest rated district. But what happens if their economic situation changes and they can no longer afford the house they live in? Will they be able to command the higher price that they paid when it comes time to sell? What happens if there's a nationwide economic downturn as we had in 2008 and buyers can't afford the higher priced homes? What happens if the school ratings decline? After all, they paid a premium to be in that great school. Now the school isn't quite so great according to the test-taking ability of the students. Can parents still demand a premium price for their homes? Probably not. Now let's go back to Brenda and Kevin. Remember they were going to sell their house in order to move so Brenda could take that new job? You would think it would be easier for them to sell their home because the school district they were in was rated highly. However, even with the highly rated school district, the souring economy made it hard for potential buyers to afford their home. There were actually more houses on the market than buyers. Classic supply and demand case. High supply with low demand means prices drop. Brenda and Kevin couldn't afford a drop in price because they didn't have much equity in the home to begin with. 
Think about this, too. What would happen if the school Brenda and Kevin's children attended actually dropped in its great school's rank? Say that school had a rating of 9 or 10 when they bought into the district, but now has dropped to a 6. In this scenario, Brenda and Kevin are at the mercy of two things completely out of their control. First, the overall economy. When you pay a premium to be in a good school district, the one thing you hope doesn't happen when it comes time to sell your home is a bad economy. Second, the school rating. When you pay a premium to be in a good school district, if the test-taking ability of children in your school falls, your property value most likely will fall as well. In either of these scenarios, demand for homes in your district will decline, which means the value of your home will decline too. If both occur simultaneously, well, let's just say that I hope you aren't leveraged heavily like Brenda and Kevin. Of course, just because prices have dropped doesn't mean they won't go lower still. Housing markets are not rational. What if the price doesn't pick up? What if the school continues to drop in rankings? All these things need to be considered as what-ifs before you purchase a more expensive house in order to live in the great school district. So my advice to you, look beyond the greatschools.org ratings. There is more to the story of a good school than a simple website evaluation can tell you. Also remember this, if you are buying a home, it's probably for the long term. Those houses in the highest rated school districts will command the highest prices. Make sure you do your research before you make the commitment to buy. If you aren't careful, this could be a very costly mistake. Variable rate mortgages are fine. One of the biggest financial mistakes I've made is my refusal to even consider adjustable rate mortgages. We've lost a lot of money, many tens of thousands of dollars, by being overly risk averse. Let me explain. We bought our first house in Phoenix, Arizona in 1998 on a fixed rate mortgage. We bought our second house in Dayton, Virginia in 2002 on a fixed rate mortgage. We bought our third house in 2008 in Bern, Texas on a fixed rate mortgage. We bought our fourth house in Haddonfield, New Jersey in 2011 on a fixed rate mortgage. We bought our fifth house in Milton, Georgia on a fixed rate mortgage. See any pattern here? Having a fixed rate mortgage makes sense if you think it is probable you'll be in that same house for many years to come. Fewer Americans do this anymore though. Just look at my family. Moving has become more frequent in the United States in our time than during any time previous. Mobility is one of the beauties of being American. Let's bring back Brenda and Kevin to illustrate. After they got married, they wanted to live the American dream and buy that house, that piece of land they could call their own, where they could start their family. So, as most people do, they looked up the school districts on greatschools.org to see where the great schools were. Then they started looking for houses in that district. As we've discussed in the previous chapter, the houses in higher-rated school districts were more expensive, but Brenda and Kevin decided that was just the price to pay to have their kids attend the best schools. So they went looking for a three-bedroom, two-bathroom, 1,200-square-foot home on a quarter of an acre. This was back in the boom days of the mid-2000s when houses were flying off the market. Listings lasted hardly longer than a week, so Brenda and Kevin had to move fast if they wanted to live the American dream. At the time, they didn't have a whole lot of debt. 
Kevin was working, as was Brenda, and between them, they were bringing home nearly $70,000 a year after taxes. No kids, just student loans and a car payment, nothing extraordinary. So the mortgage payment didn't seem like a big deal. It turned out they didn't need much of a down payment either, only 5%. They could buy a $200,000 home with only $10,000 down. A mortgage of $190,000 would finance the house. From a cash flow perspective and with their dual income, this wasn't going to be a problem at all. So they went to the bank to seek financing and had to decide the best way to borrow the money to buy the house. I don't recall specific mortgage rates from the mid-2000s, but let's run some numbers for Brenda and Kevin using today's rate, July 2017. Currently, Navy Federal Credit Union has a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage at 3.75% and a 3-1 arm at 1.875%. Let me take a timeout and explain how a 3-1 arm works. For the first three years, the interest is level at 1.875%. However, in year four and every year thereafter, the rate can change. It can increase in any given year by 2%. So assume worst-case scenario. In year four, the rate could go to 3.875%. In year five, it could go up another 2% to 5.875%. And in year six, another 2% to 7.875%, where it would stay for the remainder of the loan unless interest rates go back down. Sounds risky, right? I mean, Brenda and Kevin don't want to be stuck in a 7.875% mortgage from year six forward when they could have had a 3.75% fixed. Well, let's see. In this example, Brenda and Kevin locked in a fixed rate at 3.75%. After five years, they paid a total of $52,795, of which $33,942 was interest and 18853 was principal, leaving them with an ending mortgage balance of $171,147. But what if they took the 3-1 arm, thinking they might not be in that house for the long term? After all, it truly was a starter home. How many people actually stay in their starter homes for the long haul? Going back to that Navy Federal example, on a fixed-rate 3.75% loan for a $190,000 mortgage, they'd pay $879.92 a month. However, if they did the 3-1 arm at 1.875%, they would only pay $726.80 a month initially. Let's say they had good luck and the interest stayed the same for the entire five years. In this good luck scenario where rates don't ever change, Brenda and Kevin would have made $41,428 in total payments of which 24737 was principal and 16690 was interest, leaving them with a mortgage balance of $165,263. So in this best-case scenario, where Brenda and Kevin took an adjustable mortgage and the rates did not change, they would have saved over $11,000. In addition, their mortgage balance would have been $6,000 less than it was with the 30-year fixed. Essentially, in the best-case scenario, their net worth would have been nearly $20,000 higher with the arm than if they had gone with the fixed-rate mortgage. However, Brenda and Kevin still had to contend with the idea that they could have bad luck and the rates would turn against them. The table below shows what would have happened in that circumstance. 
Here, the interest rates stayed the same at the initial rate of 1.875% for the first three years. Then the rates jumped 2% in year four, raising their payments from $726 a month to $874. In the following year, bad luck struck again, and the rates jumped another 2% to 5.875%, causing their payments to jump yet again, this time to $1,074 a month. But even in this worst-case scenario, they paid $5,000 less in total payments, and their principal balance at the end of these five years was $3,000 less, too. All in all, with the worst luck possible, they still would have had $8,000 more in net worth than if they took the 30-year fixed route. So the question Brenda and Kevin need to answer is, what is the honest likelihood they are going to stay in their starter home for more than five years? Don't forget, they're going to have children, too. As children grow, sometimes a three-bedroom, two-bathroom, 1,200-square-foot home may be too small. Who knows? But it's important to lay all the options on the table when locking in long-term loans. Remember what happened to Brenda and Kevin in Chapter 1? They couldn't move because they didn't have enough equity in their home to drop the sales price down to what the market would pay. They also had no savings to fall back on. What if they had taken the 3-1 arm? How would that have changed their ability to move on to bigger and better things? That one decision may have made a world of difference. It could have been literally life-changing, but because they had such a high monthly payment and a large remaining mortgage balance when it came time to sell, they were stuck, resigned to staying in their current situation with their debt ever-growing. Don't let this happen to you. Don't get stuck in a home where just making the payments and living expenses takes up all your cash. Please be advised, I'm not necessarily advocating you finance a house with an adjustable rate mortgage. I am advising you to thoroughly consider your options. What happens when things change? Babies are born. Parents who live five states away get sick and you want to be there for them. A much better job comes calling. Or heaven forbid, you or your spouse are laid off or have an illness or something. You can't afford to be stuck the way Brenda and Kevin and countless other Americans were. You have to be nimble. And being nimble means being realistic in looking at all your options, not just what makes sense today, but three to five years from now, too. You should borrow from your 401k to pay debt. I am about to touch the third rail of financial planning by saying you should borrow from your retirement plan at work in order to pay down debt. The idea of never touching your retirement money for anything other than retirement is so sacrosanct in my industry that I will assuredly be labeled a heretic and forever banned from the business. I don't care. I care more about bringing you common-sense methods of organizing your finances to reduce financial stress. Now, for those of you who don't have a 401k from your employer, say you are self-employed, work for an employer who doesn't offer a retirement plan, or are even retired, hang on. Later in this chapter, I'll bring up some specific points that apply to you. For right now, though, the focus will be 401ks because there are some unique planning concepts to a 401k that are not applicable to any other account. I must add here that I'm also speaking of 403bs. A 403b is similar to a 401k, but is mainly offered through government agencies like a school district or hospital. 
Wherever I refer to the 401k, please keep in mind the information applies to most 403bs as well. Just so we're all on the same page here, let me explain what a 401k is. A 401k is a retirement plan provided by some employers as a way to incentivize its employees to save for retirement. In the old days, the company took care of its employees in retirement by providing a pension. An employee worked for a company for 30 years or so, and that company provided him some fixed amount of monthly income at retirement. The employee didn't have to do anything other than show up at work for those 30 years, and when he retired, he'd get that pension check each month. Those days are gone. The 401k replaced the pension, and now retirement is solely the responsibility of the employee. So in order to induce employees to save for their retirement, the tax code provides favorable treatment for retirement plans like the 401k. One significant benefit of the 401k is called a match. The employer may put a portion of cash into the employee's retirement account. XW, the employee, also puts money into his own account. For instance, you, the employee, contribute $500 to your retirement account. The employer may also put in $500. Thus, your account balance is worth $1,000, though you only put in $500. That's a huge incentive for you to contribute because you are literally getting a 100% rate of return on the $500 you contribute. It's awfully hard to beat that rate of return on your money. After many years of contributing to your 401k plus the company match and with hopefully decent investment returns, you can find yourself with a lot of money squirreled away. The tax code treats 401k plans favorably by allowing contributions to the employee's plan to be pre-tax and to grow tax-deferred. So in the example above, the $500 you put into your 401k was not taxed. The $500 the company put into the plan was not taxed either. You now have an account worth $1,000 on which you paid no tax. Say the account grows to $2,500. That growth is also not taxed. Until you take money out of the account, you pay no taxes. Not too shabby, right? In fact, many people's income in retirement comes from two places, Social Security and their retirement accounts like their 401k. This makes the 401k a very important account not to be taken lightly. However, a 401k also offers an opportunity that no other account types offer, the ability to borrow from it without paying tax on the amount you borrowed. You can't do that in an IRA, a SEP IRA, a simple IRA, deferred compensation, a non-qualified account, or anything else. Only a 401k and its sister account, a 403b, allows this flexibility. The ability to take a lump sum distribution from your 401k for any reason is what makes it so unique. However, to be able to easily borrow from your 401k makes financial advisors nervous. They don't want you to look at your 401k as a piggy bank. They worry that if you tap into your retirement money, you'll never put it back in. After all, your 401k will be a huge source of your income in retirement, and they don't want you to spend it down now while you're still working. Also, if you leave your job after you take money out of your 401k but don't put it back, that money will be taxed and penalized if you are under 59.5. For all these reasons, they advise clients to use extreme caution when even contemplating borrowing against a 401k. 
I happen to agree with these assessments, actually. Where I disagree is that just because a retirement plan should be used for retirement does not mean you should not use it if another situation arises where it makes sense, like paying off debt. Think about it. If I assume my retirement account will grow at a non-guaranteed 6% and my credit cards are costing me a guaranteed 10% interest, why would I not pay off my credit cards with an investment that is earning less than what I am paying to the bank? In fact, not only is my 6% assumed growth not guaranteed, there is a 40% chance that in any given year I will lose money on my balance. Historically, the market goes up 60% of the time and goes down 40%. With my credit card, though, I know for a fact that every year I will pay them 10% interest. So let's crunch some numbers and see why it makes sense to borrow from your 401k in order to pay off debt. Now remember, this only applies to those with a 401k balance. You cannot borrow from an IRA in the same way. Just keep that in mind. Let's say you have $50,000 in your 401k. You also have $10,000 in credit card debt that costs you 10% a year in interest. Your expected rate of return on your 401k is 6%. Should you borrow from your 401k in order to pay off the credit card? When you borrow from your 401k, the balance must be paid back in five years with interest. The interest today, August 2017, is about 5%. But that 5% interest is not going to the bank, it's going back into your account. In this case, with a $10,000 loan at 5% interest, you will pay $188 a month for five years. This means that after five years, you will have put $11,280 back into your account. I cannot stress this enough, you are literally paying interest to yourself. There is another critical point that I believe a lot of financial advisors overlook. Not only does each $188 payment you make include the 5% interest you pay to yourself, but those payments may also grow at your assumed rate of return as well. In this case, the 6% we previously mentioned. So unlike a credit card where the 10% interest goes to the bank, borrowing from your own money means the interest actually goes back to you with growth. So if you borrow $10,000 and your money grows at 6% a year, after five years, you'd have $13,117 in your account. Again, just to reiterate, you took $10,000 out. In five years, you'd have $13,117 back in your account. Look at Table 5. The left side shows what the account would look like if you didn't touch the 401k. With 6% investment returns, your $50,000 grows to $66,911 after five years. On the right side, you took the loan out, which drops the initial account balance to $40,000 in year one. But paying $188 for those five years and also getting that 6% investment return means you'd have $67,070, $159 more. Oh, but the fund doesn't stop there. Table six shows what happens if you leave that $10,000 in your 401k and instead pay off that 10% credit card with the same $188 a month as you would have put towards your 401k loan. After five years of paying $188 toward your 10% credit card, you still owe $1,722. The end result is that by borrowing against your 401k, 
to pay off your credit card, you have actually increased your net worth by nearly $2,000. Now be advised there are lots and lots of different ways to play out this scenario. What if you got a 0% teaser rate on a credit card? Should you take advantage of that and keep your money in the 401k? What if you expect your investments to grow more than 6%? What if you leave your job in two years? What if, what if? I get it. You can torture data to get it to confess to anything. I'm not here to convince you to do this. I'm here to open up the idea as an alternative to paying all this interest to the bank. Indeed, I wish you never had that debt to begin with. But if it's there and it costs you more than you think your investments will grow, don't overlook this option. No 401k, no problem. But what if you don't have a 401k? Say your only accounts are an IRA or even a taxable account like a bank account, mutual fund, or brokerage account. What should you do then if you have some debt at 10% and your expected return on your investments is 6%? In some cases, this is an easy call. In others, not so much. First, understand that the money you borrowed from your 401k came out tax-free. You will pay it back with after-tax dollars, but there is no immediate tax consequence when you borrow from your 401k. However, the money that comes out of your IRA will be taxable from the very first penny. Thus, when it comes to your IRA, does it make sense to pay taxes today and eliminate a debt, or defer taxes until later and slowly pay off that debt? My argument from the first chapter stands, debt is your enemy but you also need to factor taxes into the equation here. If your projected rate of return on your IRA is 6% and you pay the bank 10%, you are losing money. However, if you are in a 25% tax bracket, you will have to withdraw $13,333 from your IRA to pay off that $10,000 debt because it will cost you $3,333 in taxes. Worse yet, if you are under 59 and a half, you will also pay a 10% penalty to the IRS for the privilege of using your own money. With that additional 10% penalty on top of the 25% taxes, you'll need to withdraw almost $15,500 to pay off a $10,000 debt. As much as I despise debt, it's hard to make an argument to do that. This strategy is truly contingent on your tax bracket. But what if you have a non-IRA, i.e. taxable account, in this case, I would absolutely advise you to consider liquidating your account, pay that debt off, and never let it see the light of day again. First of all, there are no 10% penalties to the IRS for using your non-IRA money, regardless of how young you are. Also, taxable accounts have what is called a cost basis, which is the amount of money that you put into the account. When you sell a taxable account, you don't pay tax on that cost basis. For example, Let's say you have $10,000 in a mutual fund account. Your initial investment was $7,500, so you have a $2,500 gain. When you sell, you will pay taxes only on that $2,500. The $7,500 is your cost basis and is returned to you with no tax. How long you've owned the account also determines your tax. If you've owned this account more than a year, your taxes may be as low as $375. This means, it costs you $375 in one-time taxes to avoid paying nearly $1,000 a year in interest on your debt. That would be a pretty easy choice to make. Lastly, 
Let me also revisit the idea about investment rates of return. Investments are not guaranteed. You could lose a lot of money. Let's say you have $10,000 in an investment portfolio and $10,000 in credit card debt. After one year, the investment portfolio at the 6% growth rate we've assumed will be $10,600. The credit card balance has increased to $11,000. Let's say the next year, though, is like 2008, during which investments fell 40% or so. In this case, your investment portfolio is worth $6,000, but your credit card balance is $12,100. In this scenario, would you rather have taken that $10,000 and paid off the credit card, even if it meant paying some taxes? Of course. Reliable transportation without breaking the bank. Reliable transportation is a must. In fact, reliable transportation is so important that it may be the difference between securing and keeping a good job or being unemployed. You can't have your car breaking down the day you have an interview, for instance. So this chapter is devoted to making sure you have reliable transportation, but also that you don't break the bank acquiring it. Let me take you back to summer 2008, when my family was dealing with unreliable transportation. On a hot July day, my wife took the kids in our 10-year-old minivan to a mall in South San Antonio. When they came out of the mall, the van wouldn't start. Thankfully, the battery was old, so it was an easy fix. However, thinking of my wife sitting outside in the 100-degree heat with four little kids in a rough part of town made me quite uncomfortable. We couldn't let this happen again. The van had served us well for many years, but it was time she had something more reliable to drive. We thought we'd get a two- or three-year-old minivan with around 30,000 miles on it. After all, we didn't want anything new that would just depreciate 15% the minute we drove it off the lot. Also, we couldn't afford a new vehicle. So a low-mileage used vehicle seemed like the way to go. However, upon doing some research, we were stunned at how expensive used low-mileage minivans were, well over $20,000. Most banks won't finance a used vehicle for more than three years, so a $20,000 vehicle financed for three years runs about $600 a month. If we could afford $600 a month, we'd just buy something new. We were stuck. We needed reliable transportation for my wife to shuttle around the four kids. Our current minivan had over 100,000 miles and some problems. Low mileage used minivans were too expensive. We certainly didn't want to buy a high-mileage used minivan because, after all, that's what we had to begin with. It seemed our options were quite limited. Bite the bullet with a high monthly payment which we couldn't afford, or just hope that our current minivan didn't break down at an inopportune time. Then my wife saw an ad about leasing. During a closeout sale, we could lease a brand new Honda minivan for about $250 a month. I had always believed leases were bad things, but desperate times led to desperate measures, and we went to the dealership to discuss how to get a vehicle. As with everything, there were positives and negatives. On the good side of a lease, you get a whole lot more vehicle, a new vehicle in fact, for a much smaller monthly payment than many used vehicles. That is probably the best selling point of the lease actually, the low monthly payments. There are drawbacks of course. First. You have mileage restrictions. Go over the allowable miles and you will pay through the nose. Second, at the end of the lease, typically three years, 
you will have a sizable residual value that you must either pay in full to buy the vehicle outright or turn in that vehicle and lease another, which means you will be stuck with a vehicle payment forever. So there is a considerable trade-off for the initial low monthly payments. Given our circumstances, the lease was the superior option. We paid about $250 a month for three years and paid the residual value of $15,000 at maturity. The lease purchase cost us around $25,000 for a brand new minivan with payment terms that didn't break our budget. We planned to buy the van outright at maturity, but if we hadn't had the cash to do so, we could either turn the vehicle in and lease another or finance the remaining balance. Either way kept our payments way below the $600 a month cost of a used vehicle. Just to reiterate, we needed safe and reliable transportation for my wife to haul our kids around. We were not going to run the risk of her driving an old used vehicle. That was just not an option. But we also couldn't afford a significant monthly payment. Anything over $300 a month was out of our ability to pay. Remember, we were mortgaged to the hilt by purchasing a house that on paper we could afford. However, when it came to the other costs of life, like needing a working vehicle, we were getting squeezed. This is a perfect example of what happens when you buy too much house. You are limited financially in other areas. Of course, car dealers know this too, which is why they place so much emphasis on monthly payments as opposed to total cost. Just because you can afford the monthly payment doesn't mean you're getting a good deal. In fact, in general, the lower the monthly payment, the worse the deal is. Just keep that in mind. But there are times when a lease, simply due to its low monthly payment, can be advantageous. A lease was definitely our best bet given our tight cash flow and our need for reliable transportation. Will this be the case for you? You must consider that at the end of the lease, you still owe a bunch of money. If you don't have the means to pay the vehicle outright, you will have a car loan for many years to come. That is not a good scenario in the least. No financial planner is going to recommend carrying auto loans into retirement. But how do you get by today? If your primary need for transportation is to get you back and forth to work 20 miles a day, and you're not hauling around four little kids, a 10-year-old high-mileage vehicle will probably serve you just fine. Cars today are much more reliable than they've ever been. If you do basic maintenance on the moving parts, things like belts and tires, and change the oil and filters, you should be able to run your vehicle for many years. For example, I just took a quick look on autotrader.com. A 2008 VW Jetta with 66,000 miles on it costs $10,000. Payments on this vehicle, financed for three years, run about $300 a month. After three years, you own this vehicle and will probably still get another 100,000 miles on it if you give it basic maintenance. After three years, you no longer have an auto payment and may use that $300 for other things like paying off a mortgage, credit card bill, or even saving. In this case, a lease probably doesn't make sense. After all, you don't need a new vehicle. You just need something that will get you back and forth to work. If you are pretty sure the vehicle has been maintained and has no major issues, then you should be just fine buying this vehicle outright or even financing it over three years. Just recently though, I came across a benefit of leasing that I was unaware of. My job had changed locations from a nice office in the Atlanta suburbs to a prime location in Buckhead. This meant my commute time would triple. 
Given that my oldest daughter was about to start driving, we figured we would allow her to drive the older minivan and my wife would drive our 2013 Toyota Highlander and I'd get a high MPG vehicle to drive back and forth to work and hope to spend less on gas. Our last two lease arrangements had worked out well, so we went ahead and leased another vehicle. Literally on the day we had its first routine maintenance, my daughter, who happened to be driving it, was hit by some kid who took a left turn right in front of her. The insurance company totaled the vehicle. They calculated the value of the vehicle about $3,000 less than what we still owed. We had just put $3,000 down when we leased it, and now we were going to need another $3,000 just to pay it off. This vehicle was going to cost us $6,000 for the privilege of driving it for all of a month, or so I thought. I contacted Nissan to tell them about the accident and to find out exactly how much I needed to pay to get out from under the lease. It turned out that a leased vehicle automatically comes with gap insurance protection, which means if your vehicle is totaled, the lease is paid off regardless of what the insurance company pays. In our case, we still owed $21,000 and the insurance company was only going to pay $18,000. But because of the gap insurance, Nissan kicked in the other $3,000 and we could walk away. That was great news. But remember, we had put $3,000 down to begin with. There was no way we were going to recoup that down payment, which leads us to the lesson of this story. Regardless whether you lease or purchase, negotiate so as to have no down payment. The reason for this is simple. If your vehicle is totaled and you have gap insurance, you'll be made whole from what you still owe. You will not, however, recover any payments you've made, including the down payment. If you have good credit, do whatever you can to negotiate no down payment, even if it means your monthly payment is a couple of bucks higher. Better to pay more per month and keep your money in the bank than pay a little less and lose your entire down payment if your vehicle is totaled. Don't rely on your employer for life insurance. When it comes to financial planning, life insurance is an area that is often overlooked. I've spoken to many clients who, when I've asked about their life insurance coverage, say dismissively, I have it through work. Really? What exactly do you have? I ask them. At that point, there will always be a pause, a bit of hemming and hawing, and finally they will answer with a curt, I'm not really sure the exact amount, but I'm good there. I've come to the conclusion that just being asked about life insurance by a financial planner brings up a wall of defensiveness with clients. They seem to feel they'll be sold something that is not in their best interest. You can't blame clients for thinking this way. After all, life insurance salesmen are notorious for their inability to accept no. In fact, many a sales trainer foolishly describes to us the notion that a salesman needs to hear at least seven no's before the client will say yes. Thus, the badgering of clients by salesmen, many of whom happen to be in life insurance sales. Of course, this is idiotic. Any advisor or manager who advocates treating people in such a way, I implore you to get out of the business now. You are hurting the wonderful work a real advisor is doing by making clients hesitant, if not outright hostile, to take advantage of good advice for fear of being sold something. No good financial planner will let a client's initial dismissiveness end the discussion, however. A good financial planner will challenge the client, even if it means making the conversation uncomfortable, because life insurance is too critical to overlook. Just so I'm clear, a good planner will say, 
you do have kids and debt. So it's important to know exactly how much life insurance you have and what types as well. I'm going to put that down on your to-do list for things we need to discuss in our next meeting, okay? At that point, the client will nod and somewhat sheepishly agree to look into it. However, until we get answers on this unresolved issue, the good financial planner must pester the client because life insurance is that important. It's much more important than how your 401k is doing relative to the markets. Eventually, the client will get back to that planner with a list of the various coverages they have through work. There'll be a lot of accidental death and dismemberment, or AD&D insurance, which the client believes is part of his or her overall coverage. They'll say something like, I have four times my salary plus $250,000 in AD&D, so I'm good. Unfortunately, AD&D insurance isn't true life insurance. If you die from an illness, for example, your heirs will not receive a penny under these policies. There is a reason why AD&D is so inexpensive, after all, because it doesn't provide much in terms of protection. The client says he also has four times his salary. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out this is inadequate. What's your salary? Multiply that by four and you have your coverage. So if your salary is $50,000, you have $200,000 of life insurance coverage. Is that enough? Let's just go back to Brenda and Kevin. They have over $200,000 in total debt. Brenda's salary is $40,000 a year and Kevin is not working. If Brenda has four times her salary, she has $160,000 of life insurance. That is not enough to pay off their debts because Brenda is the sole income earner. If she were to die, Kevin no longer has any income coming in, yet he still has well over $40,000 in debt. It goes without saying that Brenda should get more coverage. But don't overlook Kevin either. Just because he isn't earning an income doesn't mean he shouldn't have insurance. After all, because he's a student, he has flexibility to help out around the house, get the kids off the bus, get the kids off to school in the morning while Brenda sits in traffic on her way to work. Maybe Kevin even helps with homework when they get back from school before Brenda comes home. Let's say Kevin dies. Who is going to watch the kids when they get home from school? Who's going to get them ready in the morning? All these activities either cost time that Brenda doesn't have because she has to go to work or money through a childcare provider. Childcare doesn't come cheaply. Given that Brenda and Kevin are squeezed financially right now, how much more squeezed would they be if Kevin died and Brenda had to pay for childcare? Now, just imagine if Brenda and Kevin had taken the time to look into life insurance. They'd realize it's so cheap that they should get policies on their own, as opposed to relying solely on Brenda's employer. Let's say Brenda is 43 years old and is in decent shape. USAA.com quotes a $400,000 term policy with a fixed premium for 20 years at $35 a month. For Kevin, who is, say, 47 years old, the same policy would cost $60 a month. So for less than $100 a month, both Brenda and Kevin would have $400,000 coverage guaranteed for the next 20 years. If either of them died, it would be more than enough to pay off all their debts and leave a significant amount of cash besides. All for $100 a month in premiums. Employer-sponsored life insurance also known as group insurance, is much different than a policy you get on your own. Essentially, what happens with any group policy, be it Medicare, Medicaid, employer-sponsored health, or life insurance, is that the healthy are subsidizing the sick, so the premiums get evened out for everyone. 
Take two 47-year-old men. One is overweight, sick a lot, and never exercises. The other is lean, exercises, and eats right. These guys pay the same premiums. Cost sharing is the only way for a group policy to work. Everyone in the group is underwritten the same. This actually benefits those who are not in good health, but it certainly hurts those who are in decent shape. Again, the healthy subsidize the sick. Another thing to understand about employer-sponsored life insurance is that the premiums are based on age bands, say 40 to 44, 45 to 49, etc. The older you are, the higher the premiums will be. Look at the table below to see how this works for Veterans Group Life Insurance, or VGLI. VGLI is insurance for veterans who separate from service and trade in their federal government-subsidized Soldiers Group Life Insurance, or SGLI. When they leave the service, they are guaranteed coverage, but it's at a steep cost. This table is from 2014, but the concept will be the same regardless of what year it is. Your premiums are based on the amount of insurance you desire plus your age band. As your age band increases, so does your premium. In this case, if you are 47, you pay $88 a month for $400,000 in life insurance. When you hit 50, though, your premiums increase by 60% to $144. They increase another 86% when you hit age 55 to $268 a month. The cost for this coverage has nothing to do with your physical shape, your family's history of illness, or in many cases, even if you smoke. The cost only has to do with your age and how much coverage you desire. However, if you had locked in a policy on the private market, using the USAA example, for instance, you'd be paying less than $100 a month for both you and your spouse to each have $400,000 coverage for 20 years. You'd save thousands in total premiums compared with what your employer-sponsored life insurance costs. Remember, if you have debt, you need life insurance. No two ways around that. What's the best way to get that life insurance coverage? Get your own policy first, because if you qualify, it should be significantly cheaper than a policy you can get through your employer, even if they offer life insurance as a benefit. Secondly, your own policy is not in any way tied to your employer. You can change jobs and retain the coverage as long as you continue to pay the premiums. Go back to Brenda again. What if she got a new job, but it turns out her new company doesn't offer any life insurance as a benefit? She really didn't think too much of this until she realized that she had no coverage. So she decides to do what she should have done in the first place, go get her own policy. Unfortunately, a few years ago, when things were really tight at home with the economic situation she and Kevin were in, she went to the doctor to inquire about anti-anxiety medication. When her doctor wrote the prescription, it went into Brenda's medical records, which the insurance company checks before they issue a policy. Now the life insurance company has some concerns and will only cover her if she pays huge premiums. At this stage, she's stuck because she can't afford a large life insurance premium. She and Kevin live paycheck to paycheck with no room to spare. They still have all that debt, but now they have no insurance because her new company doesn't offer it. If she were to die, Kevin and the kids would be destitute. None of this would be an issue if she and Kevin simply bought policies when they were younger, before there were any medical issues. For instance, when Kevin was 37, he could have locked in a $400,000 policy for 30 years for around $50 a month. Brenda could have gotten the same for even less because she is a woman and younger. Her premiums would have been $30 a month.
That means that between them, they could have locked in $400,000 of life insurance each at a fixed rate of about $80 a month, locked for 30 years. But they didn't do it. They didn't want to talk life insurance back then. They felt Brenda's employer's coverage was adequate. Unfortunately, they were wrong, and it will cost them either through huge premiums going forward or by the risk of not having life insurance. Don't be like Brenda and Kevin. Buy a large term policy on your own now. Say you are in your early 30s. Get a 30-year term policy to cover you until you hit your 60s, which is typically when you won't need the insurance anymore. With that policy in place, you most likely will not need to worry about life insurance again. If you're in your 40s, get a 20-year term policy to cover you until you're in your mid-60s. In your 50s, get a 10-year policy. Get enough coverage for a long enough term until you think you'll be out of debt and the kids will be out of the house. Maybe you're single, or you have no kids, no debts. You probably think you don't need life insurance coverage at all. You're right, you probably don't need life insurance now. But you will later when you get married, have kids, maybe add weight or develop a health issue that makes you a higher risk to the life insurance company than you are today. Buy it now. Buy it at a level that will at least cover the mortgage of a home you think you might own later. Term life insurance is so cheap. Just do it and get it over with so you won't have to think about it again. If nothing else, get at least a $250,000 30-year term policy and never, ever let it lapse. Parents, tell your kids to get a life insurance policy and tell them you'll pay for it if you must. By purchasing it when they're young, they'll save tons of money. Insurance is always cheapest when you don't need. So buy it today for your future needs and cross insurance off your list of things to worry about. Durable Powers of Attorney and Guardianship Estate planning is, without question, the most overlooked aspect of financial planning. In fact, I'll bet there are some readers who are about to skip this entire chapter at this very moment because they think their estate planning is covered. Don't do it. Please read this chapter. I cannot tell you how many people I've spoken with who believed their estate documents were in order but couldn't find them, or the documents were decades old, or irrelevant because people they named were no longer willing and capable to serve, or were set up in a way that would ruin their loved ones because of massive changes in tax law, or did not correspond with the way their accounts were titled. The list goes on and on. Of course, these problems are just for people who actually have estate documents. Unfortunately, many people don't even have them to begin with, which means the state will dictate what happens to their assets and their minor children. In this final chapter, I'm going to cite two often overlooked aspects of estate planning that I hope will persuade you to reconsider your estate documents. If you don't have documents to begin with, I hope these examples will encourage you to take action. If you do have documents, I hope these examples will urge you to closely examine exactly what you have and what you want to accomplish. So let's bring back our favorite couple, Brenda and Kevin, who were struggling so mightily in the middle of the economic chaos of 2008. It looked bad for them at that point. Well, now a few years have gone by and things have stabilized. They cut back quite a bit and were able to hang on. Brenda's company righted the ship more quickly than they had anticipated, and Kevin graduated college and landed a job. With more income, they were able to pay down some debt and build some equity, too. While Kevin's company didn't offer a retirement plan, 
Brenda took advantage of the match in her company's 401k plan and her balance grew nicely. Things were far from perfect, of course, but Brenda and Kevin were certainly better off than they were in 2008. Then Brenda was involved in a major car crash. The crash wasn't life-threatening, thankfully, but she was in bad shape mentally and physically. The doctors felt that with lots of hard work and time, she'd get back to normal. But of course, there were no guarantees. This happened just as things were getting better for Brenda and Kevin. One step forward and two steps back, it seemed. Kevin's income didn't cover the bills. And even with Brenda's disability insurance kicking in, they were back to running cash flow deficits. Disability insurance generally is designed to cover only 65% of the insured's income. The medical bills were coming in fast, too. It seemed a new invoice arrived every day. They owed thousands of dollars. Of course, Brenda and Kevin didn't have thousands of dollars just sitting around in a savings account. Kevin thought about going on a payment plan to pay the bills over time. He realized, however, that without Brenda's income, they were already falling behind and that adding to the monthly bills would only make things worse. So he decided to tap into Brenda's 401k in order to pay the doctors and hospital bills. That would at least give him some breathing room until Brenda was back on her feet. Kevin contacted the provider of Brenda's 401k to request a distribution from the account. The representative said, okay, sir, I'll just need to speak with your wife to confirm. Well, you can't speak with her, Kevin informed her. She was in a nasty car crash and is in the hospital. Oh, I am so sorry to hear that, sir. I certainly hope she will be okay. But only the owner can take action on the account. Well, I'm her husband, Kevin stated matter-of-factly, and the beneficiary, too. I'm sorry, sir. While she is alive, only she, the owner, can do anything with this account. But she is alive, and I need the money for her hospital bills, Kevin started to get exasperated. I'm her husband. It's just as much my money as hers, for heaven's sake. It came from our joint income. What is going on here? Sir, there is a way you can have access to this account, the firm's representative offered. By chance, do you have a power of attorney that allows you to act on her behalf? I'm not sure. Can you explain what that is? Kevin asked hopefully. The company's representative explained. The power of attorney allows someone to act on another's affairs for financial matters. It's a very important document that a lot of people get when they do their wills. Oh, it's with our will? Okay, I know exactly where that is. I'll go get it and be right back. Kevin remembered when their first child was born and Brenda was adamant about getting the legal documents done. Brenda's company had a legal assistance plan which provided basic estate documents and she felt it was a good idea to take them up on it if for no other reason than to make sure the kids had proper guardians in place if something happened. He reached into the desk drawer to pull out the estate documents. He had to dust them off since they had been in that drawer for years. Okay, I have the documents here, he said to the telephone representative. Wow, a lot of stuff to go through. What am I looking for again? The phone representative, who had been patient this whole time, answered in a very professional manner. You need to find the document that says power of attorney. Kevin proceeded to flip through page after page. Not sure what this is. It's something to do with health care. Wow, this says Aunt Sally is the guardian for the kids. Yikes, gotta fix that. Aunt Sally's gone off the deep end. The phone representative, having been through this many times before, said, We recommend you update your documents every few years to make sure they're current. Definitely will when Brenda is out of the hospital, Kevin replied. Thankfully, we even have these. Brenda had to drag me kicking and screaming to the attorney to get these drawn up, I hate to say. Okay, found it. This document says power of attorney. That's what you need, right? 
Yes, sir. A power of attorney is exactly what we need because it allows you to act on your wife's behalf. Now we need to see if it says anything about it being durable. That will typically be in the first chapter, if not in the document title. Kevin proceeds to quickly read over the document. It's only two pages. I don't see anything that says durable. Okay, the phone representative replied. What a durable power of attorney means is that the power of attorney survives incapacity, like this case with your wife being in the hospital. Can you read the section which describes when it can be acted on by you as her agent? Kevin reads through the document, then reads out to the phone rep where it says, this document will not be valid if the grantor is incapacitated. Kevin quickly understands what this means. He will not be able to get access to Brenda's money because he does not have a durable power of attorney. So because I don't have this one piece of paper, I can't get access to our money? He asks in complete disbelief. Well, technically, sir, it's not your money. It's hers. Kevin just sits in stunned silence. In that silence, the phone rep then says, well, there is one final way. Really? Kevin spruces up. There had to be. This was insanity. I'm her husband. What is it? You can always go to the courthouse and get a court order, the phone representative says. You've got to be kidding me. How long will that take? I need the money now. And Kevin hangs up the phone in complete dismay. Folks, I don't care how old you are, how many kids you have, or what your net worth is. If you don't update your estate documents, you are wrong. Yeah, maybe if you're single and just got out of the army or something, you can squeak by. But if you're married, get your documents done. Get them done today by a living, breathing estate attorney, one who will take the time to get to know you and your circumstances, and who won't just provide a boilerplate document like Kevin and Brenda's. Bear in mind, even if Kevin had all the correct documents, a durable power of attorney in this case, that doesn't mean the financial institution will accept it. Think about it from their perspective. One day out of the blue, here comes Kevin. They don't know him. In fact, they don't know Brenda either because Brenda does all her financial interactions online. So Kevin comes along and says, my wife is incapacitated. I need $20,000 from her account. Oh, and I happen to have a durable POA, which I am happy to provide. The institution is under no obligation to accept that. It may be photoshopped by some prince in Nigeria for all they know. What I highly recommend is that after you update your estate documents, make sure you provide copies to your custodian, the folks who hold your assets. Just send them a copy of the documents and ask what more do you need so that if something were to happen to either of us, we could act on the other's behalf. Some firms are notorious for giving agents a hard time, some not so much. Find out in advance what hoops you've got to jump through. The last thing you need is some phone representative giving you a hard time when you need to access your family assets because your spouse is laid up in a hospital bed. Employer-sponsored plans, i.e. 401ks, 403bs, etc., can be horrific when it comes to this stuff. They can be as lenient as the IRS allows, but I have found that they tend to fall on the strict side simply because of liability. The employer doesn't want to run the risk of giving assets to a third party who didn't have legal rights to those assets. It is advisable to look over your employer's retirement plan document. Does it say anything about the ability of an agent to act? No? Not sure? Call and find out. IRAs are different, though. In my experience, IRA providers are easier to deal with when it comes to allowing a spouse to act as agent. It's still worth the time and effort to contact the firm in advance to understand what their rules are. 
Again, some firms are easy to work with and some make it difficult. Be advised, just because you have your powers of attorney in good order, by no means are you now done with the totality of your estate planning. If you have kids, you also need to prepare for the contingency that your children will need guardians if you die. Think about it. You're dead. Your spouse is dead. Who takes care of the kids? Well, the first thing the temporary guardian will have to do is probate your will to see who you appointed as guardian of your children. Probate simply is the public proving of a will. The temporary guardian must appear before a probate judge who will rule on his interpretation of your will. Don't have a will, eh? The probate judge will then rule according to what state law dictates. The law might say something like, Orphaned children with no instructions from their deceased parents will be placed into the custody of the deceased's living parents. I was negligent in my own estate documents until I came across a guy who painted the picture of the dire consequences of my inaction. I can't remember this guy's name, unfortunately, because I'd love to credit him right now. But he had an impact on my life when he forced me to visualize what would happen to my kids. It went something like this. Our kids were just informed by a neighbor of the deaths of their parents. Child Protective Service shows up at the front door of our house to collect them. They are put in the back of a cruiser and taken away. As the cruiser drives off, they look out the back window. Everything they know just fades away, all gone just like that. Where are we going to go? What's going to happen to us? And here is when the reality begins to turn into a nightmare. The courts probably would have put my children with either my mother or father if there were no instructions from me. I have no relationship with my father. My mother, while I have a fleeting relationship with her, there is no way I could allow her to be guardian for my kids. So my parents were completely out of the running to raise our children. How about my wife's parents? Both are deceased. Think about this situation from a probate court judge's perspective. He sees four kids in front of him with no instructions from the children's parents. The probate judge has a docket of many other cases to clear, kids who have no relatives to take them in. So while it may not be the best situation, the case for my kids is pretty open and shut. At least the kids have family they can live with. You should see the options for the other kids that come before me. I'm lucky if I can even keep the kids together, the judge would rightly argue. Those kids go to foster care where they'll be moved, on average, every six months. This is an easy determination for the judge. Surviving parents of the parents are now guardians, case closed, next. And my kids are shipped off to live with my mother. This can't happen. With the picture painted for me in such a way, my wife and I made an appointment to get our documents done with a real attorney. That was more than 10 years ago. We have moved four times since then, and some of the people we named in our documents have fallen away as suitable providers for our children. Yet even I, as I sit here and write this, neglected to update my documents until just a few months ago. I'm like the cobbler whose kid has no shoes. I do this work daily for others, but had neglected my own situation. Thankfully, in those preceding 10 years, nothing happened to my wife or me. But, as the favorite question a financial planner asks, what if? I shudder to think of it. So in closing on this chapter, be prepared. Get your legal documents completed. In particular, get a durable power of attorney and take it to your financial institutions to make sure it will be approved before it's needed. And then update those documents whenever any life changes occur. Who are your guardians, executors, and financial representatives? Are they still up to the task? Every few years, just go back through your documents and see if they need to be updated. 
If so, get a competent estate planning attorney to work with you. It's worth it. Conclusion We've covered a lot of ground here. It has truly been my pleasure to share with you my experience and offer you some guidance that you may be able to use in your own financial planning. Hopefully, there are a couple of tidbits in these pages that will help you. The problem with most financial planning is that we spend so much time trying to convince people we have all the answers, when in fact, there are no set answers. What we really need to do is focus on ways to minimize the risks and maximize the rewards. The concepts examined in this book are just guides, not rules, just ways to think from a different perspective that may benefit you. Remember, there is no tried-and-true set of financial planning circumstances that apply to everyone. These are not laws like that of gravity. We know that if you hold something about the Earth and drop it, it will fall to the ground. That is not debatable. But does that mean everything we drop will always hit the ground? Of course not. What if I dropped a ball from my roof that, while falling to the earth, got stuck in the branches of a tree? The law of gravity still maintains itself, but in this case, it is impeded by something. That doesn't mean the law is wrong. Financial planning is different. There are no laws. There are only opinions. I've laid out mine in the pages of this book. Does that mean the way I see things are what you should follow? Not necessarily. What I tried to do here is share with you some of the mistakes I've seen people make during my career in financial planning, myself included. Maybe these experiences will help you see things in a different light. Maybe they will confirm what you already knew. At the end of the day, I encourage you not to get caught up in any one right way to do things. I encourage you to prepare for what may happen, good or bad, so you can use your resources as wisely and efficiently as possible. Most importantly, I don't want you to get bogged down in financial turmoil. Financial turmoil breaks families, broken families hurt kids, and ultimately lead to broken societies. I want you to be successful financially so you can reap the rewards of the successful life that God intended for you, whatever that means for you. Follow these guides, but certainly don't live by them. Just use them as a reference point and watch that debt. God bless. Josh.